this is sort of horrible, but I read this earlier today. I was looking at, like, liturgical, like, stuff about incense for some... I don't remember what the connection was. But there's this line in the old form, when the priest blessed incense, he had this line which pretty much said, may you be blessed by him in whose honor you will be burned. Um, he was talking, you know, talking to the incense. It's a pretty cool line. Um, but uh, Pius IX was visited by a bunch of Anglican priests who asked him for a blessing, and that's the blessing he gave them. <laughs> But they didn't know Latin, so they didn't know what he was saying. But all the priests in the room were apparently, like, having to, like, not be cracked. That's horrible! Yeah, that's pretty awful. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to Theo Table, where angels dancing on the head of a pin can change your life. I'm Aiden, also known as Celtic Catholic Fire. I'm Maria. I'm Jarek. And I'm Julie. What the hell? That's our topic today, hell. And the question that we're considering is, do we know that there are people in hell? Pardon my French. Well, I mean, like, I guess the traditional position of, the, at least the Western church, is that there are people in hell. Um, you know, depending on who you ask, there might be a few people in hell, there might be most people in hell, but that's the tradition of the West. But actually in the East, there's this interesting strand of, uni- of, of Christian universalism, that is that even if people end up in hell, um, everybody ends up being saved in the end, which is an interesting position that not that many people talk about anymore. Huh, that's interesting. Tell us more about the mechanics of that. So... I, I don't know if people necessarily agree on the mechanics of it, so to speak. Um, but there were famous theologians, one of them being Origen, who taught, actually, that all of creation would be redeemed, including the devil. Um, that was condemned as a heresy. The part that the devil would be yeah. redeemed was condemned as a heresy. Um, but the rest of it technically wasn't, as far as I understand. And Origen wasn't the only one. Gregory of Nyssa held a similar position um, I think Basil of Caesarea also held a similar position on the salvation of all creation. Well, I think it's probably worthwhile to note that the church doesn't say of any one particular person that they are in hell. Mm-hmm. The church has refused to say that any one particular person is in hell. Because I think that's how the church understands the formulation in Matthew, judge not lest thou be judged by thy father in heaven. It's not like, you know, some loose form of like, oh, don't say somebody's bad or else God will say you're bad. It's like, do not judge them. Do not stand in judgment and put them somewhere, particularly hell, lest your father stand in judgment upon you. And I think that's sort of why the church has refused to say that any particular person's in hell. Although we have said that particular people are in heaven. That's the saints. Just to clarify, though, the church has refused to say that particular persons are in hell. It it insists that hell exists and that there is somebody, multiple people most likely, in hell. Well, we know from the book of Revelation that Satan and all of the fallen angels... Are either in hell or will be cast into hell at the end of days. Mm-hmm. That's sort of signed and sealed. In terms of the like, the number of people, like humans in hell, like there's been lots of saints and mystics throughout the centuries. Um, Jarek mentioned quite a few, but even more recently with Fatima, the Fatima apparitions actually involved the children seeing a um, sort of a, a vision of hell full of people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I kind of like the um, version that goes something like the fact that there's a highway to hell but only a stairway to heaven tells you a lot about expected population. That's terrible. I mean, like, tells you- there are there is like some sense of scriptural basis, even if you didn't quite frame it in that '80s rock vocabulary um, <laughs> of like the of you know the narrow way. We've all heard about like narrow is the way that leads to salvation. Narrow is the sheep right. gate, or something like that, which has a similar you know the sense of that is the same as what Aiden just said. Yes, yes. But to be fair, those are also not, I think, meant to be interpreted as definitive of the number of numbers. Yeah. The number of numbers. Wow, that's a <laughs> great turn of phrase there, Aiden. Um, but no, there is, there's a great moment in one of the Gospels where I believe it's uh, James and John, the quote-unquote sons of thunder because they make so much noise, um, ask Christ how many will be saved. Yeah. And his response yeah. is not to give numbers. His response is strive to enter in. His response is strive to enter you don't the narrow to, gate. Yeah, exactly. You don't get to know exactly how narrow the narrow gate is, and exactly how wide the slippery slope to hell is. Mm-hmm. Just strive for heaven. Yeah. That's all you get to know. Strive for heaven. Actually, that reminds me of um, I think it was Steve Ray, who's like a, a very a modern um, convert, uh, and he has this line that I can't say exactly, but it's basically that if we were to believe that. You have to be, I mean, it's kind of a Pelagian thing. It's kind of a workspace thing. But if you were to believe that you have to be the most wonderful saint to get into heaven and that hell, it, then that 98% of the population goes to hell, like you would be a very sad person. That's just not a way to yeah. live your life. However, that doesn't excuse you from preaching as if everybody's, like, not as if everybody's going to hell, but preaching with that sense of urgency that mm-hmm. the way is very narrow. Because it is I urgent. Think, yeah. Yeah. And I think that, that the same distinction might be the distinction that we think about when we say, like, in the Gospels, that, oh, the way is narrow, or there's a, a highway to hell and a stairway to heaven. I have a question for you guys. So you've all heard the saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm. Mm. I've also heard that the desire to desire God is as good as a prayer in and of itself. And so... Or the desire to please God. The desire to please God, yeah, that's it. And so, kind of jumping off Julie's point, I think the idea of heaven as an attainable goal can seem very unrealistic and very stressful to a lot of Christians, especially if you're in the mindset Mm -hmm. that it's something you have to earn. And how would you guys compare or consider the human capacity to love in comparison to God's capacity to love? Because Mm. obviously we can't love God the way he loves us, but such self-gift, such kind of like outpouring of creative love demands a response in return. But outside of Mary, there's never been a human who's been sinless. So none of us outside of Mary have been able to actually be receptive to that love in the way that it demands. What do you guys think about that? Mm. I think that's why purgatory exists. Just to yeah. <laughs> throw that out there into the mix. That yeah. There's a reason Catholics believe in purgatory. And that's because when we talk about heaven, we're not assuming we're going to be like our normal sinful selves when we get to heaven. Sin is not allowed in heaven. There's no room for sin in heaven. Yeah, because sin is distance from God and heaven is right. literally the dwelling place of God. We're experiencing the vision of God face to face. 
Exactly. So, as you were talking about, Maria, that lack of fully ordered love, the fact that we cannot give ourselves back to Christ in the same way he gives ourselves to, gives himself to us, that is, that means that we are not fully ready to enter heaven, even if we die in a state of perfect friendship <clears throat> with God. So, what the Catholics see purgatory as isn't some sort of cop-out for hell, or even just some weird, like, semi-afterlife place. Um, the reason we think of purgatory, think of the afterlife as involving purgatory, is because we all have sinned, and we all need to... We, justice demands we serve penance for that, and one. And two, we need to be purified. We need to be able to enter into the fullness of God's love and grace. And purgatory helps us to do that. Yeah, and I think... That's that's a really good point, Aiden, especially because, like, I think that we, or I think people in general, when they think of purgatory, they think of a very works-based salvation, like earning your way into heaven, and you haven't quite gotten the points on the meter, so you have to be in purgatory to make them up, or what, like, you know, that's yeah. not the way it works, but, like, a lot of people think of it being that way. Um, I mean, justification by faith is a thing that Catholics believe in. It's in the Catechism, justification by the Spirit, and we can't earn that. That's a sheer gift of grace. Uh, through not our participation. To go too far down the rabbit hole, but just to clarify, justification. <laughs> Ju- so, in a sense, I don't know. I don't know if there's a place in the cate- in, ca- in the catechism where it actually says what, ju- like, a definition of justification. It just says a lot of things that justification is. Um, but in effect, it is the guidance of the Spirit. It is the grace of God allowing you to enter into relationship with Him, and that is a sheer grace. That the state and, of which, being made right with God, perhaps, mm-hmm. is the way to put it. Um, and we enter that by faith in the church and faith in Christ. And then after that, like, it, it, there's a sense in how after that our good works are sort of... We're given charity so that the good works can actually be efficacious in some sense, that they actually do something in the sense of our salvation. And, I mean, they're... While that might be controversial, particularly in Protestant circles, I mean, Paul does straight up say that we are going to be judged by our works in the next life. That is a direct quotation from one of his letters. Not to get too far down the salvation rabbit hole, though, because Mm -hmm. that is a rabbit hole five miles long. Yeah. We... we... We could talk about that as his own separate five-part series. Uh, All right, I'm going to pull you out. I'm going to pull you out. Here comes the fishing rod. All right. right. (laughs) So what's the hook? What's the hook? All right. What's the hook? Back on topic. So, maybe hell. Hell's a good hook. What the hell? Maybe that's purgatory, guys. Maybe purgatory is listening to your own self on repeat. You just you think you're having a conversation, then you back up five minutes and repeat the whole thing for as long as you need to be in purgatory. Oh, that'd be a horrible sentence. Like, God, oh. God says, okay, I know you meant well, but you didn't get this part quite right. Just do it over again. <laughs> it's a little close for to real, reincarnation, though. though. Because you, you, maybe maybe it's a matter of pride, you know? You didn't get it all quite right, yeah. so you gotta listen to yourself screw it up over and over and over again. <laughs> that would definitely instill like... a sense of mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> or at least a sense of unworthiness, which I guess is the point. Yeah. That, I mean, but, that definitely is the point. But really, what, like, 
that's a that's a comic. People people make lots of jokes of oh this is, I mean Catholics tend to make oh this is my purgatory jokes and people say oh I must be in hell. But really like, what might that experience be? Like we don't know. But do you guys have any speculation? Can't. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, based on the private revelation of a lot of saints, the the experience of hell. You mean? Yeah, or purgatory. Or pur- oh, I mean so. I think the idea of both hell. Oh, so. I like the image of connecting all three of those states, hell, purgatory, and heaven, through the common image of God's light, mm-hmm. um, the luminosity of God. When we're in, it, it's you know sort of like the sun. When we are in heaven, we have been trained to see the sun in its fullness of glory, and we revel in its glory. When we're in purgatory, our eyes are being trained to see the the light of God, the fire of God's love. But you know we're still being burned, like our eyes are burned when we try and look at the sun here. Um, whereas in hell, it's we are so distant from being able to see the light of God properly that it burns us. So this fire, this passion, it's, it's God's love is. I just to reiterate what I hear you saying is that God's love is constant across these three states, heaven, hell, and purgatory. But the difference is in the person's disposition, which is something that they've chosen and kind of cultivated throughout their lifetime about how able they are to be receptive to God's love. So in hell, you completely shut it out and it burns. In purgatory, you you want it because you know it's you have to burn sin away, basically. And in heaven, it's passionate love. Yeah, that's that's more. I mean, it's it's an imperfect analogy, but that's pretty much what I was trying to get. Okay. At. And the thing is, I think you guys hit on the fundamental point of how we can understand hell, and honestly, in the process, understand heaven and purgatory. Because I think people far far too often misunderstand what hell is. They they think of a giant fiery pit of brimstone. Oh, oh, Aiden, Aiden, gets... Aiden, Aiden, Aiden. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, this is the perfect segue for a story. So my dad read us Dante's Inferno when we were little, right? And we would go to the okay. beach every year, and we would have a, wow. a beach bonfire where you dig a pit deep in the sand. And then, like, you put the hot dogs in the fire at the bottom of it, and you roast weenies. So my brothers and I would get into it every year, and we basically made Dante's Inferno every single year and we would bring little Lego figures because you start from the bottom <laughs> up and you, ha- you have oh like, so, right, it's like a, like a conical pit and you have kind of shelves going up and you put your Lego figures on it and then you have a wall and you put seashells on it and we even had a little flag like abandon hope all ye who enter here and we would roast weenies. <laughs> Sorry, I childhood memories, you know? That's amazing. That's both amazing and somewhat horrifying. <laughs> and really scary. I want to meet your father now. <laughs> How old were you? God, we were all, like, in high school or middle school, yeah. Okay, that, okay. That, that, that's, okay. That, that makes more sense. I was no, thinking of It's better than, like, a five-year-old building no, 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 an no, elaborate no, model no. of Dante's <laughs> Yeah, my, my family were really into Hellfire, you know? Memento Mori. <laughs> oh, time flies, remember you shall die. Right. Um, yeah. But, no... To actually go back to that in all seriousness, the idea that people do take the imagery of, like, Dante's Inferno and every Mm -hmm. modern depiction of hell in the last 100 years of this giant flaming pit that God throws people into when he gets mad at them. And that's not how hell works. That's not 
quite what it is. Yeah. Right, right. Even if it's like based in scriptural images. I mean, there was scriptural images of Gehenna, the lake of right. fire, and of Christ taking all the weeds as opposed to the wheat and throwing them in the fire. Um, all that. But like, in the end, they're metaphors. And I don't think that we're supposed to think of hell as literally like a lake of fire. Right, right. And the point is that the metaphors are there to describe what we're going to experience, not how God relates to us in that way. Because mm-hmm. the point is, and Jarek, you and Maria talked about this a little earlier, hell isn't something God punishes us with, in the way you're thinking of it, or the way most people think right. of it. Hell is a choice. Right. Hell is the choice to reject God projected into eternity. Right. The idea that when we die, whatever state of friendship or enmity with God we die in, that will carry on into the afterlife when just because of... It gets interesting when you talk about, like, change in the afterlife. But basically, you cannot change your state, really, once you die. Right. Yeah, because we're outside of time, and right. what does change outside time mean? Right, right. And so it gets, into, it gets into the metaphysical nettle. Right, and I think it would behoove us to underline the justice that's at the foundation of all of this. Because if we didn't have the possibility or the option of rejecting God's love, then it would be forced on us, you know? You're forced to pay mm. homage to the God who made you. It it can't, and that's not. Well, yeah, yeah. It, it w- It's God's justice that underlines all of this. That He gives us the right to choose, and if we choose to reject His love, that is respected and upheld. Yeah, God respects our choices exactly. And the problem is when we choose to reject God, whether we know it or not, because sin is the choice to reject God. That's what we mean by sin. When we sin, that's what we do. We reject God. So when we choose to do that. God is the source of everything. God is the source of our life, our being, our very existence. So when we choose to reject God for all eternity, then essentially we continue to run from God and run from ourselves because we cannot exist without him, and yet in hell, the state of being that is hell, we cannot live with him. So we run from ourselves, run from God for all eternity, and essentially the fires of hell are the fires of God's love because God does love and care for us and wants us to experience his fullness of life. He doesn't want us to jump into the void and let ourselves die. Yeah. But if we can't accept that, if we cannot accept and receive his love, if we choose to reject it, then our existence will be hell. Yeah, I mean, there was, the, there was that C.S. Lewis line of The Great Divorce, and which was, it was something along the lines of, like, in the end, either we will say to God, thy will be done, or God will say to us, thy will be done. Which I think is an exact, like, a great encapsulation in a way that only C.S. Lewis can talk about of what you just said. Yeah, definitely. C.S. Lewis says everything better than I do. (laughs) As is G.K. Chesterton, so those are two authors you should look at. And I think going back to, like, the universalist thing, um, where I think Christian universalists take it differently is they pretty much see hell as a form of purgatory. Um... In some sense, it's not quite to that degree. And so their argument isn't that, like, God isn't just, and therefore he doesn't punish people who try and flee from him, or something like that. You know, they still see God as fully mm-hmm. just, but they see hell as the punishment, as being a temporary thing, um, which is destroyed in the new heaven and the new earth when everything is redeemed. Question for clarification. Do Eastern Christians uphold the idea of purgatory? In addition to this general universalist thing? Or do they not have that division? I 
I don't know. I'm not positive. And not all Eastern Christians are universalists right. in a sense. Um, I don't know. That's actually a really good question. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, because as we learned in the last podcast, that happens somewhat often. Uh, <laughs> but isn't there several moments in the book of Revelation where, like, not necessarily the Antichrist, but those aligned, aligned with the Antichrist are thrown into the pit as well? Yes. I wrote a paper then on it. Wouldn't... Okay, so that was... okay, good. But so then we wouldn't we say then that whoever those individuals are or represent, because the imagery of Revelation is highly symbolic, but assuming that those people yeah. do stand for some people or person or groups of people... For humans, yes. I think that's the question. Do they stand for humans? If they stand for devils, that's fine. Mm. But do they stand for people? And I think that's where the question gets complicated. But assuming they stand for people, though, wouldn't that be kind of indicative that hell does last? In the sense of a hell that people experience. Right. I mean, I would think so. And I think another example sort of along that line is Matthew 25, um, where God is talking in judgment to the sheep and the goats. Yeah. Um, and one of them says, enter into the rest that has been prepared for you. And to the others, he says, enter into the fire that has been prepared for Satan's demons or something like that. And that, to me, severely implies that hell is a place you end up and not just some middle stage on the way to a new heaven and a new earth. Um, but I know there are some people who read that not as like an actual depiction of what the end times are going to be like, but only the criteria by which... The focus isn't on the heaven and the hell, or the sheep and the goats. The focus is on feeding the poor, giving drink to the thirsty, visiting the imprisoned, right. etc. To... And, yeah. To add to that, another scriptural passage which uh, might be applicable here is the rich man and Lazarus and uh, the rich man's plea to Abraham. Mm -hmm. um, Abraham does not let him cross over to the side that he's on. And I once heard a priest give a homily where he said that the fact that the man can discuss with Abraham, who is assuredly in heaven at, in the story, is indicative of a purgatory. But Abraham, if I, rec if I recall correctly, reassures, tells the man that, like, you know, your, your, your brothers know that there is a, an eternal punishment waiting or something, and they can, like, they know they've heard this from the prophets, they don't need me, because that's very clear in the Torah. Did I get that correct? Hmm. That basically the, the brothers know because it has been taught that there is eternal punishment for the way they live. Uh, yeah, yeah. When when the rich man asks to um, come back from the dead so he might warn his family, the the word the yeah, thanks is, for filling that in. They didn't they didn't listen they didn't listen when I sent Moses or the prophets, so they won't listen to you. Ah, uh, gotcha. But on on the subject of listening to you and universalism. Um, it's funny. Someone pointed out earlier, possibly before the podcast began, how Catholics can be both criticized for being too soft on hell, um, something close to universalism, and too strict on hell. So, what's the disconnect? Like, what is the range of acceptable, like, fear of, like, is there a range of acceptable fear of hell in the Catholic Church? And if so, practically speaking, 
what is it and what's the point. Mm. I think a pretty good standard goes back to what we were discussing earlier about uh, judge not lest you be judged. That you can take hell as strictly and seriously as you want to, and you'll probably be well within your rights in the Catholic tradition. What you can't do is actually take that idea of hell and then assume or judge that people are going to be going to hell because of a single sin or because of any certain visible sin. The church does not allow us to make that judgment. It doesn't make that judgment, let alone letting us make that judgment. So I think that's a pretty good line to draw on the one side. You can't tell other people that they are definitively going to hell. And on the other side, um, the 20th century theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar has this article called Dare We Hope That All Are Saved. Um, and it's really controversial. People don't know whether or not. Like, but it hasn't formally been condemned. It hasn't formally been upheld. Um, and so it's it's in this weird state of like, we don't really know whether or not we can hope that everybody is saved. But I think the point is, not Von Balthasar's point necessarily, but the point that we can take away is that we, because we don't know whether any individual is, where any individual is going, we can always hope for their salvation. Yeah. And we can always pray for their salvation, even if they're dead, especially if they're dead. Um, and we can always work with them, um, alongside them and alongside the church, to sort of try and guide them down the straight and narrow right. path. Remotes are just brightening mm-hmm. up the environment. Speaking of brightening up the environment, I mean it's a dark subject. I was subject. going to say, yeah. Speaking of brightening up the environment, we've covered hell pretty in depth, quote unquote. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bad fun. No. Wait, you're no. right about that. Yeah. Wait, I don't think this episode would be complete without Aiden's um, understanding of the idea of a pitchfork oh, and hell no. and the depths and what oh, it comes no. from. Yeah, okay, so please enlighten me. Yeah. Story, story time. time. I was going to talk about heaven, but I'll talk about pitchforks instead. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to heaven later. Hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully. we'll get to heaven hey, later. Hey, God willing. Amen. Um, but yes, pitchforks. <laughs> this goes back to Dante, funnily enough. Comes full circle. Um, but yeah, it also comes full circle. And Dante. Circles of hell. Yeah. Circles yes. of hell. Um, but no, so the point is, for a class two semesters ago, so last fall, mm-hmm. We were reading Dante's Inferno. Yeah. Um, I believe this is the fifth circle where sinners are being boiled alive in the Lake of Tar. Um, I seem to recall this is the fifth circle. Maybe my numbers are a little off. But anyways, the point is, in this Lake of Tar... Okay, no, I didn't mean to make a pun with point. point. The point is, in this Lake of Tar, there are demons, like, stabbing at the sinners in the Lake of Tar who are trying to escape. Right. And so they, like, stab them with these these giant forks. Because that's, you know, the traditional imagery of the, the, the guy in red tights with pitchforks. Some of it is, some of it comes from things like Dante. Traditional in the secular sense, I mean. Um, but the point is, I had this great realization while we were discussing this passage that there's a reason they're called pitchforks. Because they're being used to hurl people into a lake of pitch. There go pitchforks. <laughs> so yeah, that's my etymology. On etymology one hundred and one. I like it. Mm-hmm. 
So, yes. heaven. <laughs> so, Aiden, yeah, you were saying well, that. If I remember, it was on a brighter topic, and then it became pitchforks. <laughs> pitchforks are not a brighter topic. But I figure, since we've been spending so much time talking about hell, it might also be good to, like, bring this around to why we're talking about hell so much. Not just to put, like, mm. people to be concerned about the possibility of themselves going to hell, which is not necessarily a bad concern, but it shouldn't really be your primary driving, like, thrive in this case. Right. Yes. If I may. Be scrupulous, but not Martin Luther levels of scrupulous, because that (laughs) ends poorly. I mean... Yeah, and actually, like, and, like, the church recognizes that in some senses, fear of hell or fear of punishment can, like, bring about good results. Um, like... I think there are two kinds of contrition you can have. There's imperfect contrition and perfect contrition. And perfect contrition is, you know, contrition for sin because of your love of God. Whereas imperfect contrition is contrition for sin because of something like hell or the future punishment or something like that. Um, And so while the church recognizes that you clearly prefer to be contrite for your sins because of the love of God, contrition because of fear of hell is a valid thing that we should think about and can lead to good fruits in our spiritual lives. Yeah, and for someone not familiar with that point of Jarek's, I think that's something that's really lost between the uh, the newer act of contrition and the more traditional act of contrition. His point is nicely encapsulated in the more tradition. I think if you search traditional act of contrition, um, it is what you'll find. And it says, actually, someone else quoted. Oh my god, I'm heartily sorry <laughs> for having a and I detest all my sins because of thine just punishment. But most of all, because I have offended you, O God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. And I firmly resolve, with the help of your grace, to sin no more and to avoid the near occasion of sin. Amen. Amen. There we go. That's, yeah. Thank you, Maria. (laughs) Okay. So you said your act of contrition. Hopefully you're in a state of grace when you die. And then we get to heaven. Yes. Yes. (laughs) What I was trying to say with all this is... The reason we're reflecting on hell is not to create contrition because of hell, as we were just saying. That's not mm-hmm. the best kind of contrition. The reason we're reflecting on hell is because it tells us something about heaven. That just like hell is ultimately God respecting our choices, as Jarek so pithily quoted C.S. Lewis, heaven is us respecting God's will, is us respecting God's choices for our life. And that is accomplished through faith, can only be accomplished through faith, and then it gets carried out in works that we can we must work for our own salvation. We must cooperate with God. It's like you're talking about last week with Mary. God likes to not likes, it's a horrible word. God chooses and wills <laughs> to accomplish his will through us, and that includes our salvation. Right. So yeah. Hell is forever alone. Hell. Heaven, on the other hand, forever with God. And with yes. the saints. And, and everyone else, too. And with all those other good people and things. Just overall more appealing. Yeah. I'm not going to guess that. <laughs> people can twist that very easily, Aiden. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure I'm quoting a meme. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that's our life as Catholics. Um catechized on the right. internet and all over the internet. Sorry, I'm pretty sure I'm quoting a meme in my theological <laughs> conversation. <laughs> Those are the best kind of theological conversations, though. 
like the, the, the meme of, of I think it's Nancy Pelosi and someone says like have you ever seen catechism? That's not oh no, now we're crossing politics. Wait, have, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Have you, have you ever seen the one land. where it's like I don't know I don't know the word for a three panel meme like a triptych, but it's a triptych. <laughs> For those who don't know, for those who don't know, a, a triptych is a three-panel like icon of religious art, normally depicting a thing in three scenes. And then the, the internet took and bastardized it because this one was people who you forget are Catholic, and it had Bob Marley, who apparently was a deathbed convert. Oscar, it had Bob Marley, Oscar Wilde, and Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> Nancy Pelosi is not a deathbed convert, by the way. The other two are. <laughs> <laughs> that, all right. Nancy now, or maybe our, that'll be our closing prayer. No, no guys. Obviously, that's our title. That. Pray for Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> <laughs> um, that might go. A, that might be taken a little bit badly, considering we're talking about hell. I don't know. That seems a little presumptuous. <laughs> oh, Just no. a little. Presumptuous in the other way. Yeah, Only presumptuous is when you think you're saved. Well, don't, presumptuous don't, let's, let's not, exactly let's what not the church says not to do. do. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe let's talk about pitchforks or something more fun. Actually, that's appropriate. You can pray for politicians in advance of the vote in... Argentina? Where is it? Chile? Argentina. Argentina? Chile? I think it's Argentina. Chile? And I'm pretty yeah. sure it's happened today. today. Oh. Yeah. Well. Wait, guys. I don't guys. know what happened yet, so, you know, aren't yes. prayers still are valid done? if you don't know the outcome? Yeah, Maria? Well, I think we're getting there. We're going uh, to wrap things up. <laughs> yeah. I think, we're, I think we're trying to end gracefully without damning Nancy Yeah. Without <laughs> internet damning her. Although we... Although but we, we, we get a lot of that. <laughs> we'll see. I guess we'll see how good I am at avoiding like, controversy and bad titles, because the title for this could be that, or it could be something completely different. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> Please make it something different, Aiden. Because no. we look like major... We, one, we look like major so. hypocrites. Two, we get more foot traffic. So, I don't know. <laughs> the eternal <laughs> question. The eternal question. <laughs> clickbait. Do we want... On the internet. <laughs> Do we want heretical clickbait? <laughs> no. <laughs> The heresy is bad and clickbait is bad. The combination is not good. Better title. Heresy is bad and clickbait is bad. Heresy is bad and clickbait is bad. Heresy is bad and clickbait is worse because that's heresy, so don't click. Okay. Okay, so before we officially cross the entire bridge of meta talking about naming the podcast, do we want to wrap it up with whatever semblance of grace we have left? Oh my goodness. So, thank you all for listening. Um, before you leave, as always, please pray with us the prayer of St. Thomas Aquinas. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Grant us, O Lord, minds to know you, hearts to seek you, wisdom to find you, conduct pleasing to you, faithful perseverance in waiting for you, and a hope of finally embracing Amen. you. Amen. Amen.